like there are ways there are definitely times where not only have i thought that running is selfish but that it's like actually a net negative for humanity because almost by definition when you do well like you're displacing somebody else right like you're actually harming the overall social good by succeeding and so there there've been points in my life like that's kind of how i felt like when i was 19 and maybe a little bit how i felt when i was like 29 but at this point in my life there's no question that I believe it's a major net positive for my life. Welcome to For the Long Run, the podcast exploring the why behind what keeps runners running long, strong, and motivated. I'm your host, Jonathan Levitt. Through personal and professional connections in the running world, I have the privilege of getting to know some amazing athletes. I've always been fascinated by the psychological aspects of running and what helps people to achieve success, however they define it. And this podcast is aimed at exploring this and much more. I hope you enjoy. We are psyched to announce a new partner of the podcast, Lauren Daniels. Lauren is a realtor helping buyers and sellers in the greater Denver and Boulder area and beyond, and has been a good friend of mine for a few years now. When I decided I wanted to buy a place in Boulder and put down roots here, I was completely overwhelmed by the home buying process. Lauren was already a good friend, so when we first talked about home buying, I felt a huge sense of relief. She's a neighborhood expert, has an incredible attention to detail, available for any and all questions, and made what could be a very difficult process super easy. And now we've got a beautiful home in Boulder. It's close to the trails with a big backyard for Alfie and views of the Flatirons. So if you're even considering buying a home in the area or anywhere, I highly recommend working with Lauren. You can reach her at ldaniels at milehighmodern.com and let her know we sent you. That's ldaniels at milehighmodern.com. Thanks so much to Lauren for supporting the podcast and helping us continue to grow and for all those miles together. I have a super important question for you. Are you giving your body the nutrients it needs to help bolster and protect your immune system? How do you know? Friends, I'm here to help you eliminate the guesswork with two products that have had a huge impact on keeping me healthy and strong during my training and races that I strongly encourage you to try. Prevenex Probiotic and Prevenex Immune Health Plus are powerhouse products that can help you perform at your best and keep you healthy, especially as we move into a season where bugs that can take you down are everywhere. Use code FTLR for 15% off your purchase at Prevenex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Here at For the Long Run Podcast, you know we love to talk about the bigger stuff and the deeper stuff and get down to the nitty gritty of what makes life interesting and beautiful. And while a lot of what we talk about on this show is about our physical capabilities, a big part of what we believe in here at the podcast is doing the internal work. The more we can do the internal work, go to therapy and get the support we need, the better we can show up for our communities, our families, and as athletes. And that's why we're proudly sponsored by BetterHelp, because like them, we believe that therapy is for everyone. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 25,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. If you're ready to do the internal work, go to betterhelp.com FTLR. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash FTLR to get 10% off your first month of therapy. And welcome back. I have Nicholas Thompson joining me on the podcast today. Nicholas, thanks so much for taking some time to chat. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Of course. Uh, well, cool to hear that you've uh, you've listened to a handful of the episodes and know we were just talking about Chris McDougal's. Um, maybe we'll talk about Barefoot Run today, but before we dive into <laughs> that... To. <laughs> Before we dive into that, uh, who is Nicholas? Um, I am the CEO of The Atlantic. I'm a journalist. I was the editor of Wired. I'm a longtime runner, and I love the sport in lots and lots of ways, which we'll get into. I'm sure we will. Um, to sort of set the stage, I read an article that I'm sure many people have read from you titled, To Run My Best Marathon at Age 44 and to Outrun My Past. Uh, I recommend that everyone finishes this podcast and then goes and reads this article. We'll link to the show notes. But the article sort of epitomizes running, right? The intersection of running and life. And as we were talking about before we hit record, this podcast has evolved from just talking about running to that intersection and how running is a, a vehicle to explore life and what we learn in the sport enables us to like have a different experience in life. So I'm curious first, if you've reflected on that kind of relationship with running or how you've reflected with that relationship with, with running. 
I mean, I think about that all the time. You know, running is, it's a, both a big part of my life and a small part of my life in that I've done it most of my life since I was 15 years old. Um, of the free time I have in my life, it's a pretty high percentage, but it's tiny compared to my work as a parent. It's tiny compared to my job. It's tiny compared to multiple elements of my job. And I'm constantly thinking about it. I'm thinking about what running has done for the other elements of my life. To what degree has running helped me understand my father? Just part of the point of that essay. To what degree does running affect my relationship to my children? And you know, to what degree does running affect the way I do my job? And to what degree does the way I do my job affect my running? I'm constantly thinking about the intersection of these questions. Um, because running isn't, to me, it's not, it's not an end in and of itself or it doesn't contain any ends in, a, in and of itself. It's a, it's a means to living a more productive and interesting and fulfilling life. So I'm always trying to think about how it fits into everything else. So perhaps you weren't thinking about this when you were five and running laps on your block, but at some point this intersection entered your, your mental space, your brain space. What was that like? And you've written a lot about that kind of thinking. And so curious, how much of running for you was just running? And then at what point did it really help you explore these other aspects of it? Where like, if you're running a lot, you're running 12 hours a week max and there are 168 hours in the week. So like a very small portion as you, as you highlighted. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is the first time I really consciously thought about these questions, I thought of running as a negative. And so let me go backwards. It was, I ran... I started running in high school, like probably like many people who listen to your podcast, many people who are on your podcast. I was cut from a basketball team. Track team is the only team where you can actually go. I run, turns out I'm good at it. And then it turns out I'm very good at it. And then I go to Stanford and it turns out I'm not quite good enough at it. Right? <laughs> um, and I remember I was actually going through this recently. I'm, I'm writing a book about running right now, which will be out God knows how many years because of my current job. And I was going back through some of what I wrote about running then, and it's it's quite negative. And it's um, there's a view there's Nick as a senior in college looking back at you know the freshman year Nick who was obsessed with running and trying so desperately to make it on this team, and feeling like running took up too much time, and that in fact that quitting running is what opened up my college experience, and that it was only when I quit trying to be a runner that I ended up having a fulfilling college life. Um, and that may have been because there's something about D1 sports that requires obsession. Maybe it does take up more than 12 hours a week, right? Maybe because your social life starts to revolve around it. Maybe like maybe running is a more important thing that it's harder to build a fulfilling life around when you're a college student than it is when you're an adult. Or maybe I was just wrong <laughs> and that actually I could have had an extremely fulfilling college life even if I had stayed on the Stanford team. And in fact, maybe all of that Kvetching when I was a senior was actually just displacement because I hadn't been good enough. <laughs> you know, and like the problem wasn't that you know running took up too much of my life and distracted me from my studies and my social relationship. It was actually that like I wasn't really good, and so I had to leave the team. Any case, so that was kind of stage one. Then you know, I finished college, and running's not a really important part of my life again until I'm about thirty. Um, I run a few marathons in my twenties, but. You know, I'm not particularly focused. It's not an identity. Nobody who knew me back then thought of me as a runner. And it's about when I'm about 28, 29 that I get much more into it. And then that's also when my career becomes more intense and more complicated. And so that's when I start to really try to figure out whether it's possible to balance ambitious running goals with ambitious professional goals. A lot of people, a lot of people I've talked to have gone through a similar introspection where they feel that running is selfish or they feel that uh, devoting this much time to a solo quote-unquote activity um, is yeah selfish. I've had a lot of conversations with the people who make the counterpoint that it actually enables the best version of yourself. And a lot of, as you wrote about, as, you, as we've talked about, a lot of the best thing occurs on the run. A lot of this unpacking of, of history occurred in the run. Um, 
as you got into your 30s, did that evolution happen where it, it sort of flipped the switch between this is a really selfish endeavor. I'm chasing a sub three marathon. Who cares? To this is something that's leading to a better version of myself, maybe? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like there are ways, there are definitely times where not only have I thought that running is selfish, but that it's like actually a net negative for humanity because almost by definition, when you do well, like you're displacing somebody else, right? Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> it's like you're actually harming the overall social good by succeeding. And so there, there have been points in my life, like it's kind of how I felt like when I was 19 and maybe a little bit how I felt when I was like 29. But at this point in my life, there's no question that I believe it's a major net positive for my life um, in that it, you know, it's the closest thing I have to meditation, right? I have this very intense job where I'm working, get up very early, I go to bed reasonably late, I'm working all the time. And there's a moment, like this is a moment where you break, where you think. I also think that the, the things you learn while you run about discipline, about the way performance works, the way improvement works, are highly applicable. Some ways applicable, some ways directly, some ways not, some ways indirectly to how you do well in your, your job, right? You know, there are lessons in um, the way you manage the body, the way you manage your thinking process, the way you manage your time that come from running that I think help you be both more successful and better balanced. So I feel like, I think there, there are definitely ways to be, have unhealthy relationships with running where it you know, displaces and makes you, makes you have a less fulfilling work life. But I feel like I found a pretty good, good balance. And so at this point in my life, and maybe it's just self-justification because the other thing is I enjoy it, right? Like, <laughs> and so I've worked up all this sort of elaborate philosophical justifications for why I spend my time doing this. And there are also, there are also moments, I mean, I guess right now, if I'm in a negative mood, I'm like, I got an exhausting job. Why do I have an exhausting hobby? Like, shouldn't I have a hobby that like... Doesn't <laughs> Sit on the like, couch and watch football. Physically? <laughs> right. Like in some ways that would be better. And, um, but we all have really complicated psychological reasons that go deep and we maybe don't completely understand why we do what we do. Um, but for, you know, for Nick Thompson into the world I was brought up in with the parents I had and the life I chose running, I think is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ex- let's just say I'm extremely glad that I got caught from the basketball team and found this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I played baseball and hockey growing up and I, I was average at baseball and pretty bad hockey and uh, somehow stumbled into running in my early 20s. And it, it's the kind of thing where like, if you don't have the ability to do skill sports, if you have the skill to be consistent and tenacious and relentless you can get better. It's just how it works. And to yeah. me, that's the, that's the applicable piece into life where like Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, like insert metaphor here where like you can't eat the elephant all at once or all these um, metaphors around like you can't do it all overnight. Running is the epitome of that, right? Like if you want to run a marathon, you can't go out and run the marathon the next day. You, you can do, I guess, do that with a half marathon as I talked about with Chris McDougall, but then I got a fracture. So it's like, yeah. uh, you can't, it, it forces you to take a process that enables you to be successful in other aspects of life. And like, I kind of feel like this, I'm, I'm a broken record on this topic at this point, but it's still, it's a reinforcement that I think a lot of people need to hear because it's, it's so simple, but it just works, right? Like the only secret right. is there is no secret. Well, there is no secret, except there are two secrets, right? One is that, as you said, you have to be consistent. And two, if you actually want to get better, you have to make yourself hurt, right? Not every day, like twice a week, three times a week, but you know, any person who goes into this sport and they run six or seven days a week and they go out there and they run for 30 minutes or they run for an hour and a half or whatever they run. And then twice a week, they run to the point of pain, right? And they run mile repeats, half mile repeats. They run up and down the hill. They do whatever they do. That's the process. And if you do that process for 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 18 weeks, at the end, your resting heart rate will be lower. All your body indicators will be better. You will be able to run faster. It is an amazing thing. And you know, it's what's incredible to me, I'm going through a process right now. I um, I got hurt in November. Right? I injured myself in a race, an Achilles problem, which I can explain is complicated and interesting. I had to take some time off. I hadn't taken time off in 12 years. I haven't been hurt, right? 
Uh, and now I'm coming back to it and I suck, right? And I did a tempo run on Saturday. I went out and did this five mile loop that I always run and it was the worst I'd ever run it. And, you know, part of me is like, oh my God, I'm too old. It's over. And then, of course, part of me is like, just remember the lesson, Trust right? You put the in the work, you get better. You put in the work, you get better. If I do it again this Saturday, I will be faster. And the next Saturday, I will be faster yet. At some point, the diminishing returns, but like, I will keep getting quicker as long as I put in the work. And it's a good lesson for all of your life, right? There is, like, I have an intractable problem at work, like, like, very hard to solve. I can either like throw up my hands and say it's unsolvable, nobody can solve it, or I can say today I'm going to spend 30 minutes and I'm going to close the door and all I'm going to do is think about this problem. And either I'm going to get a better solution or I'm not. But you know, the lesson you learn from running is just you keep at it. Totally. So running re-entered your life in a different way in your late 20s, as you talked about. Um, why do you think it came back into your life? Yeah, it's a good question. I... Um, well, you know, in some ways it goes back to my father. My father, when I was seven years old, my, you know, my parents got divorced. I didn't have that many ways to connect with me lived far away. Um, one of them was running. He had like taught me how to run. We'd run a mile together when I was five. Maybe, maybe we'd run two miles. I can't quite remember. Three miles, possibly. I have some vague recollection of this three-mile loop. But now that I have a, when I had a five-year-old, I was like, could I really have run three miles when I was five? Um, in any case, he introduced me to running. And then when I was seven, I had watched him run the New York Marathon. And he had run... He'd wanted to break three hours and he'd run 301. And so then in my 20s, I was like, oh, I should run a three-hour marathon. It's like my dad, right? It seemed like that was like kind of the metric of a successful marathon. And marathons were things you did. And so I started running and I ran five or six marathons, four or five marathons, something like that. Never broke three hours. I think I got to 307. Um, wasn't that focused. And then I, then I like trained a little bit harder. Um, maybe it was kind of like a moment of professional stagnation and needed something else to do. And so I ran a 257 and then I like met a running club and then I ran a 243. And it was like so exciting to go, like to suddenly get a lot quicker. Um, then I was like, wow, <laughs> what should I do next? Um, and so that began, if you break my running life into stages, that began a new stage. And what sort of doors did that open for you or, or where did it lead that was unexpected? Well, you mean running the 243 and like, well, that, that led to I mean, ex extremely complicated next chapter. So I go through that process. Running becomes like a big part of my life. I'm really excited. I run that 243. I'm like, God, I'm going to get faster. And then I go, I have a physical checkup right afterwards. You know, I've delayed the checkup, right? Like as any right. good runner does, you delay going right. to see the doctor because you have all these pains and you know the doctor is going to tell you to stop running. So wait till you finish the marathon and then go see the doctor. Um, and so I go see the doctor and he like finds a lump in my throat. Um, it's right after the race. And, uh, you know, we, I go through the whole process. It turns out it's cancer. It's extremely complicated. I go through this terrible treatment and existential worries about life and whether I'm going to survive. And I, I, was, I was 30 at the time. Um, and then eventually I, I get healthy. It takes a long time. Um, but maybe it's a year and a half and I start really training again. And then I come back and, um, I run one marathon and then two years I run the New York, I run the New York marathon when I was 30 and 243. And then I come back after all the treatments and I run the New York marathon and 243 again, I'm eight seconds faster. <laughs> and it's like one of the most beautiful moments of my life. Like I, it means that I'm alive again. And so then I begin this really interesting and only in retrospect, do I figure it out. But for the next 10 years, I run probably 15 marathons and they're like, they're all like almost exactly the same time. Right. Like if you, if like, there's like maybe one or two where it's a little bit up. I run one, 239. But really, I think I run the New York Marathon in 243 or 242 or 245 or 246 like eight times, right? Like really narrow window. And, you know, the question I had was, well, why, why, like, why, why did I do that? And while I was doing it, I was like, well, this is just kind of my level, right? And then la only later would I realize, well, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was just like at some deep psychological level, I was just trying to become the person I or get back to being the person I was before I got sick. Uh, and so that was the sort of the next chapter of my life was all of these 240s, uh, which then led to the, the chapter after that, which is where I get much faster. Talk to me about the, the cancer diagnosis and the, like a lot of people say you don't really know the meaning of life until you are presented with the alternative, like, did something like that ever come up to you? Well, I don't, it, it's true. I didn't know the meaning of life beforehand. Um, 
Do you now? I, think it's also, I certainly don't. I mean, it does. I mean, I mean, it does. Maybe like more about mortality and like why we're here or, or through purpose or uh, something of that nature. Yeah, just I mean, shallow stuff. It, you know, what it does, it, you know, it certainly made me think more seriously about what I'm doing, right? Think more seriously about whether the work I was doing mattered. And I think it also made me, it probably made me more attentive as a parent and more focused on, you know, I didn't have children then, but I had children. So the diagnosis was 2005. I was healthy in 2007. The children started appearing. I have three children. They start, the first one's 2008, 2010, 2014. Um, it made me, I think, be a more focused parent and care more about that. Now, whether being a focused parent makes you a better parent um, or not, like maybe like the ideal parent just lets the kids enough add enough. <laughs> it's complicated, right? Um, <laughs> but it definitely it made me it made me care more deeply about things that are really important. And I, it definitely like it, there's no question that my you know I've always been a journalist. I've always been a writer. There's no question that I've been much better at my job after the diagnosis, after the children. Now, whether that's because of the diagnosis or whether it's because of having children, who knows, or whether it's just because I was in my 30s, who knows. But like, if you look at the work I produced in my 20s and the work I produced in my 30s and the work I produced in my 40s, it's, it definitely gets better. Maybe it's on the decline now, but it definitely gets better um, from the 20s to the 30s. And whether it's because the diagnosis made me like focus more, think more deeply, put me through real life experience that I hadn't been through before. I don't know. Um, maybe in retrospect, I'll have a good answer on that, but there's no, there's no question that a couple of things happen at that stage in my life. And that afterwards I, I'm in a, in a better spot in some ways. We'll circle back in 50 years and that's the same question. Yeah. Um, so you alluded to getting a bit faster as the years have gone on. Um, that's the, that's the dream for so many people, right? Like, the, to yeah. to fight the aging process, and there's so much chatter these days about health span versus longevity. And health span is defined loosely as like offsetting the living healthier longer, right? Like doing what you love for longer, feeling better while you're doing it. It's what I do for my day job. It's um, why I you know wake up and I'm excited about what I get to do for work. Um, but it's it's permeated every aspect of what people are talking about podcasts and and magazines and this kind of stuff. Have you thought about that? And and are there specific things that you've done over the years that have enabled you to continue to to get better? Or is it just like I finished run the other day in DC. This uh this I don't know, he must have been C five seventy years old. He sees me crossing the street. I'm super sweaty. He's like, hey man, how how was your run today? Nice work. How far did you go? I was like, oh, I did twelve. Uh, he's like, oh man, it's been a while since I run twelve miles. My only uh-huh. advice to you: don't stop moving. And uh-huh. and I guess he used to run with uh, with his name is Greg. Um, he used to run with uh, DC Striders, um, uh-huh. Capital Striders, and his advice was just don't stop moving. So for you. What would you tell someone who's, you know, in their thirties and looking to looking to keep it going as as you have? Yeah. So, you know, well it's two things, right? So the keep it going thing was very much like that. It was both don't stop moving, but also never break, right? So when I look at why I was able to be so consistent throughout all my thirties, right? Basically running two forty something marathon every fall, every spring. Um, you know, it was mostly like I kept going and, um, but I also never went to the point where I cracked. Like I never, I never pushed to the point where I got injured. I never pushed to the point where I decided the sport overtook my life. Like I was running like 50, 60 miles a week. And I would, I had a pretty simple system for a lot of those years where I would, um, I would run like 30, 40 miles a week. I would commute to and from the office. Uh, and then starting in June or July, I would start to build up and I'd get up to about 60 miles a week. And then I'd run the New York marathon, I'd run it in 243. And then I take some time, um, and then I was starting to get a little bit slower. So this is my early forties, and I'd run like a two forty five, a two forty six, and I was like, God, I, I had this weird goal. I was forty three, and I was like, I'm going to run less two hours, better than two hours plus my age in minutes, so better than two forty three, right? Um, and because so I had run two thirty nine, but when I was like thirty six, like I'd never done that. I'd never done better than two hours plus age in minutes, and 
it was that year when I set that goal. I also got this outreach from these terrific coaches at Nike who approached me and they're doing some experiment with, you know, with non-elite runners, giving them real training. And so I, I met with these brilliant coaches, Steve Finley, the main one runs the Brooklyn track club. Um, you know, Brett Kirby, who's one of their elite sports physiologists, Joe Holder, you know, these guys are geniuses. Uh, and I start to talk to the three of them about my training plan. I show my old logs and they're like, you don't, why are you running 243? You can go so much faster. And so Finley puts me on a, gives me a new structured training program, which is you know, more mileage, more speed. Joe puts me on a new diet. Um, Brett starts to talk to me about the sport. They also like, they also start figuring out kind of subtle psychological ways to get me to expand my limits. And then I, I you know, I go through this process with them. And so that fall, I run 238 in New York. Um, or no, I run 238 in Chicago and forward to that, I come back around 238 in New York. And then I go through it again. Steve gives me a new training plan. I run 234 in Boston. Steve gives me a new training plan. I run 229 in Chicago. And then I get in the best shape of my life, but COVID comes. And then Steve gives me a new training plan. And I set the American record in the 50K for my age. Um, and now like that was, I guess, a year and a half ago. And now I'm going backwards. Um, but you know, there, it was this sort of this magical process of they just sort of kept increasing my training volume to a point where I didn't get hurt. I had increased the intensity and they convinced me, you know, it's, it's hard when you've run 15, 243s to, you know, it's 610, 615 pace to not fall apart psychologically running by 50 pace. Um, and they figured out how to subtly move my frame of reference to get there. So the next stage in my life, which is going much faster, is you know, so much. I, like, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have had a shot at it without those guys. Of course, it then raises these questions like, why the hell didn't I go faster when I was younger? Like, what was I doing? Right? Like, how did this guy who ran, you know, 229 at, I guess it was 44, like, why was I running like 318 when I was 25 in my physical prime? So it does, it raises some questions in reverse too. But I, back to the runner, you, you know, the guy, Greg, um, I think his advice is great. Just keep going. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> If you've been enjoying this podcast and can spare 90 seconds of your time today, can you do me a favor? Can you pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? It helps other people find and enjoy the podcast too. Thanks so much. Is it a good market to buy a home in? What about to sell a home? What even goes on in the housing market? How do you even keep track? Well, good news for you. You don't have to know all the answers if you're interested in buying or selling your home because you can just work with the best realtor around, Lauren Daniels. Whether you're thinking of buying or selling your home, Lauren is your go-to. She treats every client with care and helps make what could be a very scary process, dare I say, fun. Lauren helps you get organized and stay on top of important deadlines and guides you towards the right home for you instead of pushing you towards something that doesn't feel right. Even if you're not ready yet or you're not in the Denver or Boulder area, we highly recommend following Lauren on Instagram because she's always sharing great information about the housing market. Give her a follow at lauren.in.colorado on Instagram. And if you're already ready to start the conversation, give her a shout at ldaniels at milehighmodern.com and let her know we sent you. That's ldaniels at milehighmodern.com. I got to talk about this last season of training for a second. So while training for a CIM, I've hit the highest weekly mileage I've ever hit and highest monthly mileage I've ever hit. What's really cool about that is I feel awesome. I feel like I can just keep running and running and running, and I also have the energy for everything else in life. I haven't gotten sick, even despite those around me getting sick, not even the sniffles for me. And I obviously can't pin this on a single thing, but I've been really diligent about taking Prevanex's Immune Health Plus and Probiotic incredibly diligently. I've been taking that every single day since March, and it's helping. So I encourage you to check it out and use code FTLR at checkout for 15% off at Prevenex.com. I, I've spent some time in um, South Florida in Grandparent Land. And I love running down there because it's a pretty poignant reminder of how fragile life can be, right? Like, yeah. One day we're out running marathons and fast forward a few years and we're unable to walk on our own and, or you're, you know, shuffling down the road at one mile an hour and that's your max pace. And I find the, the dichotomy between like running a 10K in the hot floor sun with humidity 
next to an image of a guy in a wheelchair to be like the perfect epitome of this conversation, right? Like you certainly can't prevent that, but you can certainly appreciate what you can do and and do all you can, right? And and the don't stop moving pushes off that potential impact as, as long as possible. Um, I'm curious, Joe Holder is a fascinating guy. Um, we did a podcast together a couple years ago and I still reference a lot of the conversations we had on there. Very worked with him with um, some of the stuff we've done with Shalane. He is fascinating and, and uh, knows quite a lot about physiology. I'm curious like, if you can share what were some of the... It sounds like a lot of this was mental and, and psychological, right? Like you had the physiological ability to do it. You probably could have done it in your 20s if that's your capacity as a 44-year-old, 45-year-old. What were the mental unlocks that that those guys helped you helped you achieve, and and how did they go about that? And there's so there's so many, and they're so interesting. So the first mental unlock is, you know, pain is a psychological process as much as a physical process. And like, where exactly is the line between physical and psychological? Nobody knows. But you know, and I can't define the word pain. Well, I'm not going to define not the word physical. I'm not going to define the word psychological. I can't define any of those words, but we kind of know what they mean, and. So when does pain set in? Well, it sets in when certain physiological things happen. And it also sets in when your body gets afraid that it's going to you know, lose homeostasis or you won't be able to sustain what you're doing. And so one of the ways to train is to convince your mind that you can do it, right? But the problem is that the only thing you can use to convince your mind that you can do something is your mind, right? So like, you know, it's hard, right? Like, um, and so one of the things that Steve Finley in particular did is he had me run like very short intervals, like 200 meters, right? I would do like 32 by 200 at oh my goodness. You know, like 34 seconds, right? So I'm running, but what it means is you're looking at your watch and your watch is like 438 pace, right? Or, you know, 440 pace or 444 pace, whatever it's showing. It's showing you these numbers that look absurd, right? Because I wouldn't, when I was doing my old training, I would you know, maybe I'd run like a little bit at like 555 pace. But what he was doing, maybe there's some physiological benefit to running 32 by 200, but there's real mental benefit because like you look at your watch enough and it says 440 per mile. And then when he has you out there, (laughs) right? Then when you're out there and he's like, okay, now I want you to run two miles at 520 pace. Maybe it's not quite so scary, right? And maybe your brain at some psychological level is like, okay, I can run two miles at 520 pace. And then you run two miles at 520 pace. And then maybe when you're out there on the course, right? And you're trying to break 230, which is whatever it is, 541. I can't quite remember, right? Um, or you're trying to run like 555s or whatever you're trying to run. Which is, 555 is what I was trying to run in the 50K. Um, you know, you run all those miles at 520. So 555 isn't so scary, right? Whereas, you know, when I began that process, even if, if you had taken... So there's the Nick in October of... 2019, which is when I ran 229. If you took that exact physiological nick, right, with the exact same weight and heart rate and muscular strength, and you had put him in June of 2018 when I started this process, I don't, I wouldn't have broken 240, right? It would have been too hard mentally, and so it required all of this mental work and this physical work to get myself to that point where I could go so much faster. Then, of course, then the next question is, well, Nick, if it's mental, right? And Steve was able to like play these tricks on you to get you on 229. Like, why didn't he get you to run 215, right? <laughs> um, and they, at some point, there is a physical limit. And you may, maybe like maybe it was COVID. Like, maybe he could have gotten me to go faster. Maybe I could have run at 225. Like, I don't, I don't actually know what the exact limit would have been if I had been able to keep that system going before it kind of all broke down. It's fascinating how the mind works in this consideration or this kind of uh, arena, right? It's like why I've continued to do this podcast because I find that there are so many of these little like unlocks or or, um, tactics that these high performers have incorporated into their lives that someone listening, maybe maybe their goal is a five-hour marathon and whatever that pace is, they'll go do a bunch of work a minute faster than that effort. Like that's the takeaway here. And it's super cool that like you can reframe hard and make it something different. For me, I went the other way in order to run my first sub three marathon and I ran long trail stuff. And so mm-hmm. like six, seven hours on the trail 
um, felt long. And then all of a sudden these two and a half hour long runs didn't yeah. feel long. And, and, but like there was still a weird, weird feeling of like when I went out the eight and my, my miles were at 640 pace, I was like, I've literally never felt this effortless at this speed. I don't know what's going to happen. And for me, it was like the curiosity of like peering behind the wall to see like, what is this? What is this yeah. like? And then just, it worked. <laughs> I mean, my, my feeling about training, my training philosophy is that what you want to do is you want to take, they're like 20 systems or 50 systems in your body that can fail when you're running a marathon or you're running an ultra or you're running a mile, right? You're, yeah, I don't know. You can have hydrogen ions that, you know, go into your bloodstreams. You've, you know, or you can like your quadriceps can be sore or you can have digestive issues or you can run out of carbohydrates, right? Or your like feet can blister, right? You have all these things that can fail. And the way I like to train is I like to tax every system a little bit more at some point during the training cycle than it'll be taxed during the marathon. So you run, maybe you run more than 26 miles in one run. You certainly do runs at a faster pace, right? I'll go and I'll go run 18 miles, but starting super dehydrated, right? Or I'll go and I'll run 20 miles with a hangover, right? Like you go and you do, or I'll go like, you know, I'll run down a mountain, right? To like really strain my quads, right? So I'm always trying to like, figure out because you can't stress every system to the max or else that would be a marathon right and then you takes a long time to recover so like i in different runs i try to stress each system a little bit more than it will be stressed in the marathon do you think this is why ice baths are so popular these days because you know i <laughs> I, I saw i guess it was steve magnus who's one of my other favorite people in the sport and i was interviewing him and i was asking about like recovery techniques and he's like well there are all these like recovery techniques. You can like take a bath and wine. You can take an ice bath. You can do heat. You can go to like, I don't know, hyperbaric chambers. And like really the best thing to do is to like have beer with friends. So my, my, the way I recover from a marathon is I have nachos with my kids. It's the, the recovery of my choice. There was an article in, uh, in outside a few years ago that talked about like one of the best recovery tactics is exactly what you said. Like go for a run and finish at a bar and socialize with friends and yeah maybe like in today's day and age people are having non-alcoholic gear and you know, still doing it at a bar or whatnot but there's so much value in the socializing aspect of it and the like the lack of or, or reduction in cortisol happens from like being with your peers and and being in that space where you're enjoying yourself and not um yeah. i just found the the dialogue on on ice bath to be fascinating. I have one and I barely use it because <laughs> it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather, I, I, I'd rather sit sauna and like actively sweat or, or passively sweat. And you know, that's widely researched and is validated by science. Yeah. So you have a really, really busy routine or, or lifestyle. You have a family, you have a, your CEO, um, and, and you run as well. I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about balance or, or disagreeing that you should strive to be balanced and instead focus on the, the stuff that matters most. What's your relationship with the word balance? Well, I, you know, I guess there are a couple of elements to that. So my view is I do think you want to strive to be the absolute best in like a, the best that you can be in a number of things. Right. And I try really hard to be the best CEO I can be of the Atlantic. And I'm constantly trying to evaluate my weaknesses and where can I do better and where do I need to put more time and try, trying to do the same process that was sort of less systematic and then being a better parent. Right. And, but at the same time, I'm doing the same thing with running and I'm trying to like, you know, genuinely be the best runner that I, I can be at this age. And so there's that, there's the, the question of, can you, do you have the mental space to be ambitious in multiple things? And I think you can, and I think they can be complementary, right? As I've said early on that the, the discipline I've learned from running and the, it, it, it's weird. It's like both running provides discipline for my life and it provides relaxation and that it's the one, the one break. But I also try extremely hard to be maximally efficient because I know I need that for my job. So I like, you know, I ran in this morning and I ran commute, which is a form of efficiency, right? Because um, and then while run commuting, I listened to a podcast interview with the guy I have to interview on stage next week. Right. So I'm, um, but about an interesting topic. So I'm learning something, right. So there's like, there's a lot of different efficiency hacks that I've built into my life and to try to make it possible for me to do all these things. I mean, it would be really interesting 
I'm curious whether the Nick in like 15 years wonders whether like actually all this running kind of screwed up my professional life. I think it helps, but it'll, it'll be something where you need distance to understand it. What do you mean by that? But how, how could it versus it helping um, well, your, your personal life as well? Yeah, I mean, so if I were like, okay, so first of all, there's a bunch of time, right? So you either, I'm run commuting, but like it's, it is quicker to take the subway. And then, you know, if I, if I run commute, I have to shower twice during the day. If I take the subway, I shower once during the day. So I'm saving the amount of time that it takes to shower, right? Which is not that much time, like, you know, but like, um, th- there is time, right? And there's time when it's part of your team, but there's also like, it is unquestionably the case that there are days where, certainly when I'm in hard training cycles, where I will drop my kid off at school, two of them to get themselves to school, the third one I take to school. Uh, and then I'll go and run like four by two miles in Prospect Park. And then I'll show up at work at 10 o'clock as opposed to nine o'clock, right? And like, and I'll show up and I'll be like pretty spent, <laughs> right? And like, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be, I'm pretty good at spending the day and nobody will notice. But, um, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's some sacrifice there. Maybe there's like a time sacrifice. Maybe there's a mental energy sacrifice, like, because I have to plan that four by two and, you know, there's some mental benefits and there's some mental costs. My guess is that it's overall positive, but, and certainly it is certainly the case that my career like has gone better and that I've met, you know, my objectives and accomplished the tasks. Some of, you know, while I've been doing this. So I suppose that's the best data point that it's, it's working right now. Professionally, it's working while the running is working. So I don't need to change it. Maybe that's where I should leave it. Like, I don't need to think too much about it um, because they're both working fine right now. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That makes sense. So you've achieved, I guess, what would consider conventional levels of success. You've run fast. You've broken, you know, these barriers for yourself that you might not have thought possible. You've got a family and you're the CEO. Like these are objective measures of like conventional success. I'm saying in air quotes for those who aren't on video. Um, I am. I am curious how how you define success right like i've i've found again this podcast is fascinating because i get to talk to such uh, successful people by conventional definitions of the word and i'm always fascinated how those types of people define success so how does nick define the word success well okay so professionally i have a very specific goal which is essentially the same goal i've had for the last 15 years of my career which is Journalism is extremely important to civic life in America, and it's extremely important to a functioning American democracy, right? And whatever I learned from my parents, my grandparents, the, you know, having some positive impact on the way American democracy functions is extremely important. So my objective in really, since I started at The New Yorker, which would have been in 2010, has been very much like help figure out the business models and help through all the different things that one does during the course of the day to get these publications that, you know, probably some of your listeners think are garbage and hurt American democracy. But in general, I'm pretty much convinced do help the function of democracy and that they provide a space for thoughtful understanding of the world and beautiful poems and you know, interesting essays about politics, make sure that these publications can survive financially. And so success to me is, you know, we built out a business model at The New Yorker that unquestionably helped the New Yorker last longer, publish more good stories. Same thing at Wired, right? That was their editor-in-chief for four years. Unquestionably, I left and I was in a much better place, you know, financially and editorially. Um, and then my hope at, at The Atlantic is the same thing, that whenever I leave this job, that, you know, an objective person will look at it and say, like, not only did they do really good work while Nick was there, but it's in a better place and will last longer. Like, this publication has been, this publication was founded in 1857 by abolitionists, right? Like, pretty important role in American history. I am like one of the shepherds of it. And so whenever I leave the Atlantic and everybody listening, please subscribe or advertise in the publication. Um, you know, I want it to be in better. So that is, that is professional success. Parenting success, I want my children to be curious, generous, and to you know, pursue their own goals and feel supported and loved, right? And so you know, I, try to, I try to do that, right? And try to set up an environment where they can... You know, I, I don't want them to be certain things or hit certain targets or like fulfill all my unfulfilled desires from my youth. Like I want them to, you know, but I want them to be generous and curious, you know? Uh, and so I try to foster that running success. That's, you know, that gets complicated because objectively 
like I set certain goals. Like I, this year, I really wanted to break the record in the 50 mile for the American record for men over 45 in the 50 mile. I trained my ass off for it and I failed. You know, um, I went out and I ran a really good London marathon. And then six weeks later, I went out to run the Tunnel Hill 50 miler, had to run a certain pace, stayed on it, and then um, injured my Achilles and dropped out. Um, and why did I injure my Achilles? Why well, I wasn't able to hold the pace? Was I fit for it? Had I not injured my Achilles, would have it? Who the hell knows? But um, but was this year a failure? I don't think so because actually with running, I do set these goals and I do have specific things that I say is success. And the goal is, you know, if I hit that, that's the goal. But really I'm trying to both understand life a little bit more and like use the sport to get me to a, a more spiritual place and a, like a better understanding of life and like more in balance with earth and the world, right? So there's like my running life I have, it's funny, in my running, like I have the most specific objectives, but like sort of the broadest, most spiritual goal. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if I look back at the past year, did I succeed and hit my goal? No, I did not. I had a goal and I didn't hit it. Um, but did running bring me something very valuable? Yes, absolutely. I love that. It's always so interesting. And when I started asking this question, I very quickly realized that people, again, who have achieved the these high conventional levels of success define success in a totally subjective way. You can't measure the impact you have on your kids. You can't measure progress. You can't measure, like, did you do X, Y, Z? I mean, I suppose if you're in a better financial state with a company, like that, that's definitely measurable. But for the most part, it's these subjective things yeah. that are entirely within your control. And that's, that's the takeaway. It's not like I won this or I was the best at that. You're comparing yourself in a situation where you don't have control of who else shows up uh, on that yeah. day. Um, so I think, I think that's fascinating. What would you tell a younger version of yourself? Maybe the 19 year old Nick that um, just getting, getting serious with running. Tell them about running or tell them about life. Yes. <laughs> so if I were talking to my 19-year-old self, um, I mean, it's funny because the version of Nick from, let's say the college version of Nick, 18 to 21 or 22, was both, was like super intense in a way I admire, right? And I lived like the, everything in life was like brighter colors, right? And, you know, I tried so hard and developed these incredible friendships and, learned so much. And I lived this, I had an amazing time in college. And the, the thing that's most surprising me when I look back at it is I had no plan whatsoever for what happens next. Like I had no sense. I had some vague sense I would go and I'd work for an environmental org, but like, well, like, what does that even mean? And what would the org be? And how would you even support yourself? And I had like no concept of marriage and children, all the things that come after that. And so I lived this totally self-contained world. And then, you know, I graduate. And I get kind of like bopped in the face, right? And I like, I get this cool job because I'm you know, kind of like charismatic and energetic. And I get fired from it immediately. And then I go to Africa and I get kidnapped. And right, like all this like crazy shit happens in my first year. And so in some ways you look back and you're like, you could tell like 21-year-old Nick, like, <laughs> dude, like you <laughs> plan better, right? But on the other hand, all that crazy shit that happened is like turns out to be totally valuable and like useful learning experiences. So I mean, I think the lesson, like the central lesson in life and the thing that I always try to remember, and like even yesterday, I was, I was in a bad mood about, you know, I had kind of something had gone wrong. It was kind of my fault, right? And, but it was my fault, but not, it was like my fault just because the way it had turned out, right? I hadn't like done something unethical. I was just like, this thing had not worked the way I had wanted it to work. Um, and I was like flustered. I was like, wait, hold on, don't get flustered. There's no point, right? Like it's kind of the lesson from running and the thing we talked about before, which is, if things are going badly or things has gone wrong, you just stop, right? And then you try to do the next thing right. Or like you try to like in the next hour, you try to do the most important, most valuable things you can do, or the things that are most important for all your objectives in life for the next hour. Or like even if you can't do it for the next hour, just for the next 10 minutes, but just don't like, don't mope, right? Like keep trying to, the same lesson from running. Like you, you get out of bed and you go running and like things get better. And you know, something went wrong. You had a bad workout. You know, you screwed up this thing at the office. Like you missed this target, right? Or you like presented the PowerPoint in the wrong order and had this consequence that, oh, fuck, right? 
okay, fine. But like now, like go and do the next thing, right? Go and do the next run, go and like move on to the next thing. And so I actually had that conversation myself. And I think that's a good lesson. And it's such a, it's a good lesson for any stage in life, which is any success is the result of a hundred different consecutive successes. And any failure is usually the result of a hundred different consecutive failures. And so what that teaches you is that whether you, the last thing with success or failure, what matters is the next one. And you just try to like reorient yourself and do that. And it's true of running. It's true of work. It's true of parenting, right? It's true of all these. It's true of like every, everything that, you know, you give time and attention to. I think this is where you drop your mic. <laughs> that was yeah. awesome. Um, I, yeah, I love that. I totally agree. Uh, I think it's a good place to, uh, to wrap on this conversation. Um, for those who, uh, who don't follow you, where can we, where can we find you in your corner of the internet or the Atlantic and, and, What's the yes? What's the I'm next CEO step the to hear, hear more about you? I'm CEO of the Atlantic, right? You go to the Atlantic, um, but you're not actually going to see me there because I'm CEO. I'm just a business guy. Um, I'm on social media. I'm NX Thompson on Twitter, Instagram. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, I post daily videos about what I think is most important in tech. Um, I'm there on Facebook and you know LinkedIn, and then I'm I'm on Strava. So um, that's where I'll be. That's where I'll be running. Not that much right now because I'm still getting over this Achilles injury. Nick, thanks so much for taking some time to chat and we'll see you out there. Thanks so much, John. It was a real pleasure. That's it for today's episode. Like many long runs, it's sad when it has to end. I hope you join in next time on For the Long Run. And in the meantime, happy trails. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you shared it so that others can find it and enjoy it too. This podcast and the accompanying music has been produced by Brian Walters of Single Track Sound. For the Long Run's logo was created by Vanessa Wolf of Sterling Wolf. Show notes have been written by Ruby Wiles and is managed by Emily Holland. It takes a village. 